Yeah, thank you very much, uh, 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 Bob Katish. And I, th- I guess many many of uh, our listeners here would also know you uh, on Twitter because uh, you're, you're very active on Twitter as well and uh, somebody who, uh, you know, always makes your views known. Um, but maybe just, I guess, uh, for the purposes of our discussion, we often, you know, segmented into two. The one is just a brief autobiographical sketch uh, just on your background and then in the other we talk about a few areas and I also want us uh, to maybe shine a spotlight this evening on uh, your assessments of the state of health of the labor movement in South Africa uh, and the broader context but let's first get into who Katishi Masamola is uh, you are from Dofaya I'm from Dofaya yeah middle and so way to born in 1968 grew up here uh, you know, at age uh, 17, like many other youngsters, mm. uh, we were beginning to be active as political uh, student activists. Uh, uh, I went on, and in 1988, unfortunately, like many of us, I got detained in what was uh, referred to as the state of emergency regulation. Mm. Uh, that was in uh, May 1988, and in February 1989, we embarked on hunger strike uh, at the Johannesburg uh, prison, and that hunger strike uh, went on to go nationwide, uh, and as other historians would pick up, uh, it was a watershed moment in mm. our country, mm. uh, and the rest of us were released, albeit with restrictions. Uh, and the much defiant campaign of 1989 could be regarded to have sourced its inspiration from the defiant uh, hunger strike by the detainees. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, and then in 1990, I went uh, for a university bridging program at Kenya College. 91 to 94 was at VET. And in 95, I joined the Food and Allied Workers Union as a national negotiator. Mm. I went on to serve in various capacities. And in 2004, I was elected the general secretary until I left uh, the union in 2019. Mm. So 15 years of being a general secretary was quite a, a heavy responsibility. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, at the moment, uh, I'm trying to do some policy advisory okay. work, strategic okay. consulting, mm. including on matters before the competition authority, sure. you know, guiding uh, some of the unions, uh, SMMEs, mm. and of course, uh, consumer groupings that yeah. uh, may be organized in one way or the other. Sure. This is quite interesting because we were talking about a, a massive competition matter earlier on. So I'll certainly hear some of your thoughts, I mean, on, on the consumer issues, the public interest issues as part of the Competition Act as well. Uh, but I mean, your, your, your tenure as the GS of FAO, I mean, and, and FAO, as I said earlier on, I mean, that's a, a historic trade union, even its uh, predecessor trade unions uh, were also very recognizable ones, led massive boycotts and very much a force um, in the 70s and in the 80s uh, in South Africa. But your tenure coincides with, one, the development of the law as we understand it from a labor law perspective, but also a very critical moment in the broader labor movement in South Africa because, you know, we now have a labor movement that is an alliance with the powers that be. What are some of the complications that, in your view, now with hindsight, uh, you know, came up with that? And, And what are some of the traps now that you think in hindsight you could have avoided as a broader labor movement? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky issue, and there's continued debate within Amaway in concerto circles. Uh, the issue of being in alliance with uh, a ruling party mm. uh, that sometimes uh, pursue policies that are contradistinctively uh, in opposition to those that uh, are pursued by uh, the labor movement in the best interest of the working class. So there's been a delicate relationship. Uh, and when we, as FAO, uh, with, together with NUMSA, went on to launch SAFTU, uh, that could have been one of the reasons, you know, that uh, we've picked up, that the relationship between COSATU uh, and the ANC as a ruling party was a difficult one. Mm. Uh, but, you know, some of us... Uh, as we went into SAFTU, the idea was not to be an anti-ANC uh, federation, mm. but to be a party politically non-aligned labor federation that mm. will not have limitations that goes with being mm. alliance with a ruling party. I-, I want you to pause there for a second because uh, I want us to take a brief break and we'll come back to that point that you're raising. Uh, this idea of not being party politically affiliated. Because, I mean, historically there's been massive debates around this whole idea of political unionism, what other people might call workerism uh, or economism or whatever. So so we'll come back to those debates uh, and also, I guess, some of your own reflections on the sector you were organizing and how that has changed. Um, I mean, a lot of firms buying up other firms um, and really, I guess, the food, agro-processing and uh, canning and other sectors in South Africa, um, one might argue, not as big as they used to be. And uh, we'll continue on that score with uh, Katisha Masa Mola, a former general secretary of FAO and a political activist and agitator. Congratulations, you passed matric. Woo! Do you hear that? That's for you. When? Jay, you are the one answering the call to do great things. The one using education to build a great life for yourself. And 24 minutes it is after 8 p.m. You tuned in to Metro FM Talk here on the Mighty Metro. And uh, this evening, our thought leader is Katishi Masamola. He's a trade unionist, uh, activist, and uh, former general secretary of the Food and Allied Workers Union. And uh, uh, before we went to the break, uh, uh, Masamola, you're making the point that, uh, you know, you wanted to really build a federation that wasn't aligned in a party political fashion to the, I guess, any organization, least of all the organization that is uh, in charge of the state in any society. Um, It does seem, I guess, um, you know, that that gets you smack bang into many of the debates that happened in Kosatu uh, in its early days. I mean, uh, the type of trade unionism uh, uh, that, uh, or the forms of trade unionism that were in contention there. Many people saying, look, why you know, do you want a trade union to align itself in particular to a national organization and all of those things? Um, do you get a sense that those issues have been resolved? Um, uh, because in many ways they divide the working class. You can't run away from it um, and inadvertently strengthen the hand of the bosses. Yeah, no, that's true. Uh, you know, Yabong, that there's a need for uh, the current labor federations in the country to begin to honestly talk about how political, particularly party political issues, get to uh, unduly divide uh, the working people in this country to begin to craft an arrangement that uh, pursues one federation in one country and, of course, cascading that down to one union in one industry. 
Look, uh, to have a politically non-aligned uh, Labour Federation does not translate to an apolitical uh, federation. So, what it does, yeah. it says you'll continue to pursue traditions of being a social movement uh, unionism. In other words, you'll pick up the struggles of communities, the struggles uh, that affect the working class, even if it's outside of the factory floor. Uh, the issue of food prices, uh, the issue of basic income grants, uh, these are the issues that ought to be taken by the Labour Federation over and above those issues that are pursued by organized workers in factories, in farms, uh, and in other workplaces. So that makes a labor federation, a trade union to be a progressive and to be, in fact, a social movement a union, a union mm. uh, that will find resonance uh, with the people uh, beyond the workplace. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I mean, I guess that's, that's the big issue because that leads me to my next question around your own experiences uh, at the time where you left Kosatu. I mean, you know, if, if you had said to somebody in the 90s that uh, there would be trade unions, least of all FAO and others, NUMSA, that would leave Kosatu, I mean, that would have been anathema. That would have been, you know, blasphemous in some in some corners. Um, how difficult was that moment? I mean, for yourselves in FAO and some of your counterparts in NUMSA um, and many of the other, you know, affiliates and, and comrades uh, that you left in Kosatu with whom you'd worked for many years. I must say, it was a painful decision that uh, uh, we as FAO took at our National Congress in 2016. Mm. Uh, I guess the same could be um, said about NONSA. Uh, what you could pick up, though, the common thread is that uh, both of uh, us, NONSA and FAO, were basically industrial unions. In other mm. words, uh, unions that operate in the manufacturing sector uh, we were facing chicken dumping, we were facing real uh, pressure points uh, to wages due to chicken dumping, but also due to the strength of of the bosses, of the employers, you know. Uh, deindustrialization of the steel industry was affecting NOMSA. So we had our kind of unique challenges as industrial unions uh, compared to what you could call private sector unions that, in fact, became a sizable uh, chunk of uh, COSATU at the time. So they were together bigger than uh, a collective of industrial unions. I think those dynamics uh, uh, had a play uh, in how ultimately we took decisions to leave leave COSATU. But like I say, you know, it is never too late to review these kinds of decisions to enter into talks in the best interest of having a stronger uh, single labor federation in this country because the employers and capital in general, uh, it's strengthened and it's even deriving more strength uh, from what we call neoliberal policy part that our government is pursuing. Mm. So it's workers for themselves, they have to unite and uh, uh, they've got nothing to lose really except they are changed yeah. of bondage. I mean, I guess there's, there's, there's a lot of common interests, as you say, and these are decisions that are reversible. Um, but talk to me about, I guess, certainly in your view as somebody who 
has worked in labor. I mean, many of the people who are in government would have at some stage, you know, been many of your comrades inside Kosatu, inside FAO, inside the ANC. Um, I mean, just, you know, your, your thoughts, um, because I think the point you're making is that in many ways the, the working class has been sold a dummy uh, or the working class, uh, many people in the working class feel they have res- on, the sh- on the receiving end of the short end of the stick. Um, I mean, and, and, and if we think about it now in the context of what's happening with Clover, um, I'd be interested, I mean, uh, to hear from you um, alongside all of what has been happening in the political side of things. When it comes to the economy, the sectors you organize in, um, you know, anything from, uh, you know, the shop floor in the retail centers through to the factories and the poultry sector, your experiences, what have you seen uh, during that moment where you were in the general secretary for 15 years and even now while you're outside of FAO? Um, as the development of that particular sector and how uh, and the direction that has followed? Well, I can tell you now that uh, vulnerable workers in this economy were at the receiving end. Uh, farm workers, workers working in mm. restaurants and fast food outlets, in the retail sector, and uh, in other vulnerable uh, workplaces. Uh, and I must say that the idea of introducing the national minimum wage was uh, welcomed, albeit it was pitched at the lower level. But that we have such a uh, principle of a national minimum wage is something we should welcome ours is to work on how best we make that principle to work for workers. You know, yesterday uh, I went through an editorial of Business Day a premier business uh, newspaper in this mm. country. And one of the things they've acknowledged in that editorial was the declining share of national income by the working people. Mm. Uh, they went on to say 50% uh, of the, the, the bottom 50% have seen their wages uh, or incomes on a steady decline. And that feeds into income inequality. Mm. And you can only rely on stronger unions to fight back. And for them to fight back, they need to unite. Yes, the terrain of organizing farm workers uh, remains uh, very difficult. Uh, Unions organized today, they ought to source resources. They ought to have well-oiled machinery for them to push back against naked exploitation of farm workers. You can't only rely on government you also ought to rely on your own organization as worker. Mm, mm. Your assessment of the state um, of organization, I mean, because I think you raise a very important point that there are parts of this economy that seemingly are a no-go area for the trade union movement. I mean, even nearly 30 years since 1994 and since the introduction of the 1996 constitution, uh, there are many workplaces that, um, you know, yeah, trade union organizers can never ever access i mean be at the places that are the private homes where domestic workers work uh, and in the sector you organize in many farm workers those working in factories um, and many of those who work in retail um, might have seen i guess their work conditions even worsen over the the last three decades or so i mean what are your views on that because uh, it just does seem that um, you're seeing less and less penetration of the trade union movement um, in workplaces uh, and effectively leaving workers to their own devices and leaving workers uh, without a organization that can be able, I guess, to represent their interest. Yeah, I, well, maybe two or three points. Number one, I think unions must begin, especially those who are organized, 
uh, in vulnerable areas to cross-subsidize. In other words, to use the resources that they get from uh, your traditionally strong sectors within their unions and get those resources to be deployed in uh, trying to get uh, into farm into farms, for instance, in the case of FAO. So that would be one concrete thing that unions must uh, consider. The second one uh, is for government to begin to be truly pro-poor, to uh, begin to not only develop policies that talk to vulnerable workers, but also to resource, you know, their institutional capacity to enforce existing laws. For instance, the Inspectorate Division of Department of Labor is poorly resourced. Uh, you can't have a couple of hundreds of people for, you know, millions uh, of vulnerable workers in this country, about 800,000 farm workers, uh, 1 million domestic workers. I mean, the list goes on. You need to have a fiscal policy that speaks to increase budget allocation uh, to the Department of Labor and Employment for them to hire more uh, inspectors to enforce the law. So there's quite a number of things mm. that uh, I may not exhaust today that ought to be considered by the labor movement and by the labor movement working with government as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, over the last few weeks or so, uh, former finance minister Tito Mboweni, um, you know, made a very tongue-in-cheek comment and, and it certainly did trigger a lot of response and reflection from people where he was saying, look, in the case of public sector workers, for instance, you know, that he felt they were the real, you know, owners of the South African economy. And uh, I guess, you know, he speaks to the fact that the PIC is the largest investor in South Africa, which doesn't always translate, I guess, into, you know, the, the latter comment that says effectively those workers own the entire economy. But it does foreground the importance, I guess, of collective savings of workers, uh, be it in investment funds or even via their pension funds. Uh, and when I say investment funds, I mean trade union investment funds. You've had some experience in that space. Talk to me about, I guess, the big lessons that you've learned in your experience and also the experience of some of your counterparts in other trade unions who would have had similar investment companies um, and where the experiences have really been mixed. Um, I, I mean, there are some where it has worked well and there are others where it hasn't worked well. And I guess even in, your, in the case of your own union has also been the center of a lot of conflict. Yeah, no, true. Uh, in fact, uh, I'm even, uh, I'm hoping to write a, a, you know, a peer-reviewed article on uh, the role of union investment in unity of unions, but also what uh, they should, the repurposing of uh, of this union investment. It may take me a couple of months, uh, but the, the idea is to uh, get unions not to dump the issue of union investment mm. just because they become a source of conflict, but to basically repurpose it. Let me tell you one thing that uh, I'll forever cherish. When I was uh, at vet unit, well, when I went to vet university on my second year, uh, and I couldn't re-register, uh, but my mom, who was a member of South African Clothing and Textile Workers Union, was able to secure at the time 2,000 rent mm. uh, by virtue of being a beneficiary of a union investment wing of taxi. Mm. And uh, that helped me, and here am I today, you know. So I, all what I'm saying is that uh, uh, without throwing 
out the baby, I mean, with the bath water, we need to sit back and say, how can we get these things to work? Mm. Other investments, uh, companies of unions have worked well. Others uh, have not worked well, including the one that uh, uh, the union I come from. Mm. Uh, and for those that have worked well, there's also a contradiction. Uh, if one union investment company owns a stake in Clover, for instance, and Clover's on strike, that is the source of the uh, conflict mm. of ideological interest, if mm. you like. Mm. And these are the matters that ought to be on the agenda uh, of the labor movement in this country. Yeah, very difficult matters, seemingly intractable. Uh, and just maybe as we wrap up, uh, you said you're in the world now of consultancy and uh, putting together your thoughts, hopefully to put a PhD together. Uh, talk to me just about that journey. I mean, post the trade union movement um, and uh, still interfacing with the trade union movement and even the broader community organization, small business and everybody. How has that been? Yeah, no, it's it's already started, you know, a couple of months ago. Uh, I've uh, established a consultancy firm. Uh, I'm assisting a couple of clients. One of them is SIGC, mm-hmm. which has, for instance, laid a complaint with a competition tribunal against a particular medical scheme and the medical, uh, I mean, schemes administration company. Yes. Uh, that's the one thing I hope to set up a research institute because I need to mobilize the youngsters, the bright minds, to begin to write about uh, a pro-poor and anti-elitist uh, policy past that uh, uh, our government and this uh, country ought to pursue. Mm. We need to contest the discourse. At the moment, uh, uh, in the media and elsewhere, the dominant view is that of uh, neoliberal uh, ideology. We ought to get the answer to begin to contest that, uh, that ideology. Uh, so, I, I'm, 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 there's a plan on that. Yes, a uh, chance uh, being available. I hope to pursue PhD studies. Currently, I'm writing a book on apartheid torture Mm. Uh, paint and harm, and uh, uh, with Saturday being the 40th anniversary of uh, the murder of Neil Agat mm. and me touching uh, somewhat uh, in my book, uh, I have a section on that. Uh, you know, uh, I thought it prudent to write these things before uh, before some of us die. We, mm. we, we die, you know, we are in our 50s. And we don't want uh, the coming generation not yeah. to know where we are coming Please, man. Prakatis nishyanum khabulu, man. Ay, ay, ay. It's bad out here. Yeah. It's bad out here. Katishu Masamola, thank you very much for taking time out to speak to us this evening. You are a thought leader on this Thursday.